Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. This is the third and final episode in our World Cup weekly mini-series. In this episode, we looked at Lionel Messi's poetic last dance, Morocco's endearing collectivism and Antoine Griezmann's scintillating string-pulling for France. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. I would, as always, direct you to the show notes where you will find a comprehensive running order of what we discussed over the course of the episode. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. I would just note that we will return in the new year with our usual fortnightly episodes discussing all the latest developments in domestic European football. So if you haven't already done so, please do consider subscribing. That will, of course, help us to grow the podcast, but it will also help you because it will ensure that all of our episodes in the future will land in your podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, enjoy this episode. Thanks as always for your continued support. the third and final episode of our World Cup weekly mini-series. It's just me and Michael Jones this evening. Rudy Barlow is on post-match press conference duties following France's 2-0 win over Morocco. But if I was only going to have one person for company, then Michael Jones would probably be up there with one of my top picks. Michael Jones, you're looking resplendent this evening. How are you doing? Oh, thanks. Well, the same goes for you. Yeah, I'm going good. I mean, it sounds crazy that it's the third and final episode. The World Cup's gone like so much quicker than usual ones in the past. I don't know if that's because here it's shorter days at the moment, but hmm. certainly felt like the quickest World Cup I can remember. Maybe it's a sign of age as well. Yeah, I think for me as well, I would echo that sentiment, Michael. I think the fact that I had a holiday sandwich right in the middle of the tournament as well probably adds to that for me personally. I missed the kind of the last round of group stage games. I think didn't actually catch any of the games when I was over there. Uh, so it was just highlights I was restricted to. But yeah, it certainly does feel like the tournament has flown in. I think as well, certainly in Scotland, we've got the return to action of top flight domestic football this weekend. So that quick turnaround on both sides of the tournament probably yeah does exacerbate that feeling of this being a very quick and almost rushed tournament. Okay, well, the last time we spoke, we were looking forward to the prospect of four tantalising quarterfinals and by and large, those four quarterfinals delivered. What we're going to do in this episode is we're going to look forward to the final. We've obviously just had the semi-finals. We're recording this just, well, half an hour or so after the final whistle has blown uh, in France's win over Morocco. So we're going to look forward to the final and in doing so, we will sort of analyse how the semi-finals and to an extent the quarter-finals went. Michael, I think one man 
probably has dominated the headlines more so than any other over the course of the tournament on the whole. One man is, yeah, certainly going to be hoping that it will go his way on Sunday afternoon. And that is, of course, the majestic Lionel Messi. He has captivated the crowds in Qatar as he has captivated the crowds across Europe, across the world throughout his career. If this is indeed to be his last dance on the international stage, Michael, how poetic a last dance would it be for the Argentinian magician? Yeah, I don't think it could be any more poetic. I think it does cement himself as the best player to have ever played or, you know, overall when people look back and it, the conversation itself, you know, the debate with him and Ronaldo, the debate with him and Maradona, Pele, over the years, it, it's become almost a bit trivialised in terms of, you know, or Zidane, you know, in terms of how we decide how a career is judged, how do we decide who has been the best player of all time, obviously. Always hard to judge when a player is still playing, and that's always been the case with Messi. And I think it's... It, but I think, you know, coming back to the final, it really does cement his position, um, if they are to win, as the greatest player of all time. And I think there's mm. an important reason for that. I think, you know, it may have been a little bit different had he won it when he was sort of at his sort of scintillating, unstoppable best, even though he's been unstoppable for years, but maybe his most unstoppable around the 2010 World Cup when Argentina were married, uh, managed by Maradona, married with Maradona to Messi, maybe. But... I think one of the things that's been so poetic about this, like you said, is that, you know, you can tell Messi doesn't have the speed that he once had. You can tell he can't occupy the same sort of positions in the final third that maybe he once had, and he has to drop deeper, partially because of the team that he's playing with. But in doing so, he's kind of grown into that role as the tournament's gone on. And I think in previous World Cups, even the one where he got nominated, he won the Golden Ball in 2014, you could accuse Messi of maybe Mm. not being the you know living up to his sort of club form but this time he he's probably played better than I haven't been watching too much PSG but he's kind of grown into the tournament and become arguably one of the best players in the tournament I think it yeah it would be so poetic sort of at his age taking this new role and sort of the leadership qualities he's showing both on and off the ball as well with the sort of younger teammates around him like of Alexis McAllister Enzo Fernandez. Julian Alvarez have of course scored those two great goals in the semi-final over Croatia. And I think my sort of closing remark was when one of the things that adds to that sort of um yeah, that poetic thing that you mentioned was in I, when I was watching the end of the France um, Morocco semi-final tonight on BBC, Rio Ferdinand mentioned about that sort of passing of the mantle between Mbappe and Messi and one of the really interesting things that came to mind when I thought that was it just reminded me of the sort of commentary following France's elimination of Argentina in 2018 so to think four years late over four years later here we are and Messi can almost take that back off him and say no wait I'm still the one to be I think that's just beautiful. I mean, not that I don't want Mbappe to win, not that. I mean, I kind of want Messi to win, as you might be able to tell. But Mm. And Argentina, it's not just Messi, it's Argentina, of course. But yeah, it'd be beautiful, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think Messi's form for PSG this season, for anyone who's watched him, they won't, obviously, throughout his career, he has captivated audiences. But I don't 
think anyone who has watched Messi for PSG this season would have been too surprised. I know that the narrative has been that Messi has been not so much fading away, but there has been a regression of sorts, albeit to a level which still for most people would be totally unattainable, but there has been a regression of sorts. This season, it did feel like he was sort of getting into the groove for this World Cup, for this last dance. Now, I don't know if you'll have seen the footage, Michael, you probably will have seen the footage captured by a fan uh, who was on the kind of the far side, if you like, on the side that on which Messi was typically operating in that second half against Croatia. And the fan captured the footage. It seems like so many people capture footage of Messi in full flow, but this footage in particular... We see Messi almost toying with Josko Guardiol, who another player who has had a sensational World Cup, only 20 years of age, arguably the, one of the best young players in the tournament, if not the best young player in the tournament. And somebody or a few people were making the comment, actually, that Guardiol's defending isn't actually that bad. He doesn't actually do anything terribly wrong. It's just Messi is just so good. And yet, despite the fact that, that Guardiol hasn't put, really put a foot wrong, he's still made to look every bit as silly as... Jerome Boateng was made to look silly at the new camp. I think uh, we've, we've referenced that a few times on the podcast when Messi sat Boateng down on his rear end. And Guardiola's defending was a hundred times better than Boateng defending in that particular incident. I just want to know, or rather, I just want to ask you, was there anything more Guardiola could have done there? Or was he, uh, even in his amazing moment of a tournament that he is having, was was even he just totally unable to, to keep up with, with Lionel Messi? Yeah, I've seen the video. I mean, I agree. Vardial's been, yeah, surely one of the, gets into that team in the tournament. But hmm. I mean, maybe the one thing he could have done was just hack him down. Straight <laughs> I don't think there's a legal way he could have stopped him in that moment. Every time he thought Messi was going one way, Messi went the other. And it, it almost seemed just like sort of ingrained in Messi's sort of memory from when he's done it in the hmm. past. When he was doing it. Hmm. it just seemed like he was sort Mu- of repeating. Muscle memory. Yeah, it was like muscle yeah, memory. Muscle memory. Absolutely. And it, it, you kind of got that because I remember there's that really famous goal in the final against Athletic Bilbao um, in the Copa del Rey a few years ago. And mm. I know there's sort of similarities with that. Obviously, he was on his squad, the goal, and he came in from a different angle into the box. But where he sort of worked his way from the touchline and came round, it was just, yeah, glorious. And maybe there was something about this Messi now that he is almost more the creator. Obviously, he's the joint top scorer of the tournament, but he's had such a big creative role in this Argentina team. And it was really fitting that he did set up Julian Alvarez, who of course had a sensational semi-final. Yeah, absolutely. I think the reference there to Vardiol and the way in which Messi almost toyed with him, I think that takes us on nicely to a few words on Croatia. We obviously spoke about their experience prior to that game with Brazil. And that experience, I think, did come in particularly in the latter stages of the game for Croatia. I think in the end, Michael, you got it spot on when you spoke about particularly the experience of their midfield three. I think that resilience, that in-game ability to to pull yourself back into a game and to, yeah, to, to knock your opponent psychologically for six, so to speak. Perhaps inevitably, however, they did run out of steam and I say inevitably because they'd had three quite intense group stage games. They'd had two knockout games which had gone the distance, one of which well both of which rather had had gone to penalties. And so it did seem almost inevitable that they would run out of steam. 
to what extent did that exhaustion manifest itself in their performance against Argentina, which ultimately was 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 rather disappointing to lose three 0 in a semi final of a World Cup is yeah is is rather disappointing. Yeah, I think so much energy must go into this Croatia side in terms of recovering in games. Obviously, they did it against Japan, they did it against Brazil, they've done it in previous tournaments. And when that first Argentina goal goes in, well, the penalty is a hammer blow, especially given the nature of it. It's a bit of a controversial penalty for what, I've, what it's worth. I thought it was a penalty. But I do sort of acknowledge, you know, the, the way that Alvarez scored that second goal, when you could kind of see each of the Croatian defenders sort of on their last legs, stretching their leg, trying to do everything. I think Alvarez did brilliantly, although he had a little bit of luck with the deflections. He also created that look because he was sort of positioning his body to almost anticipate where the ball was going to deflect to, which I just thought was magical before the goal itself. But yeah, I mean, coming back to Croatia, I think they they did kind of do everything they could. And this has been a sensational tournament for them. I, I do think there's genuinely a case to say that this... Okay, they didn't get to the World Cup final, but you could almost say that this has been a better World Cup for them than it was in 2018. Mm. I think beating this Brazil side, many people had favourites. I mean, obviously they beat England on the way. I think England were the sort of highest ranked or sort of biggest name team to beat other than Argentina in the group. When group stage, you know, you see a lot of upsets. But beating a Brazil side that many people had as favourites, especially after going down to a late Neymar brilliant goal and, you know, creating a wonderfully sort of crafted equaliser, obviously a bit of luck with this Bruno Petkovic striking itself, but to do that and then Livakovic's sort of heroics from the spot, I mean, it's just been one for them to cherish and for them to have reached, you know, I think they, the first World Cup they could even qualify for was in 1994. So for them to have reached three semifinals, you know, and not qualifying in two of the World Cups, since then, it's just a sensational achievement. And, you know, I think it's only natural, especially when the best player is at 37 years of age, although he doesn't look it in the slightest. I think it's totally understandable. I think there was obviously on a more critical point that maybe, you know, there's that lack of firepower. And I think, if anything, mm. the manager put too much reliance on going sort of um, bust, uh, going for everything in the second half, going to attack him when... You know, Lovren Meyer, player you talked about, he didn't come on until much later. And I thought mm. that was a perfect kind of player they probably should have brought on in that game. But yeah, what did you think? Yeah, I was just going to say a word on Andre Kramaric, a player who I've seen play for Hoffenheim quite a few times, actually, in, when I used to go and watch Hoffenheim back in the day. A few years ago, I saw him score a lovely hat-trick actually against Hanover, if I'm remembering correctly, a gorgeous dink over the goalkeeper to seal that hat-trick. And I think coming into this World Cup, and I think just generally, for me, Kramaric has been the sort of forgotten man of European football. Like, Hoffenheim have been playing in Champions Leagues, Europa Leagues, and they've been playing at a decent enough level in, in those tournaments. And certainly in the Bundesliga, they've, they've not been the most consistent side, but Kramaric has been integral to the Hoffenheim story, certainly over the last few years anyway. And I know that, well, obviously, when, when he was coming through, the youth academies over in Croatia, he was breaking all sorts of records and then he got that move to Leicester and was, was part of the title-winning side, let's not forget, although I think yeah, maybe... Yeah, I actually made... saw him at yeah. Leicester. That's the only time I've seen him live and obviously yeah. Shaq was very well sent. I think he only had, what, two appearances in the league that season. So I think for me, because of that spell at Leicester, a lot of people's judgment was perhaps skewed when it comes to Andre Kramaric and I really wanted him to have a really positive 
tournament to try and sort of mould his reputation into something more befitting of what he's managed to do at Hoffenheim, which has been nothing short of remarkable. He's put up some fantastic numbers at the Rheinnecker Arena. And so I'm slightly disappointed that probably the legacy of Croatia's tournament will be the fact that they didn't really have a striker capable of essentially putting them into the final. I think if they did have a world-class striker, then then maybe you're looking at Croatia in the final. As it so happens, Kramaric just wasn't quite at the necessary level. We'll probably continue to be the sort of the forgotten man, the nearly man of European football. And I think that's a shame because he has been sublime for Hoffenheim, even if he has suffered from injuries here and there. Okay, Michael, I think we will move on now to speak about France. They obviously won 2-0 against Morocco this evening. Antoine Griezmann, we spoke about him as the orchestrator, if you like, of the French attack in our last episode. And once again, certainly against England, he was the best player on the park. Now, Michael, Griezmann's not actually scored yet for the French, but as we saw with Olivier Giroud back in 2018, that doesn't necessarily mean that a player hasn't been pivotal to his side's success. And Griezmann definitely qualifies for that label. He has been so integral to everything positive the French have done uh, in almost all parts of the park. Is there an argument to be made? And if there is such an argument, how would you make such an argument that Antoine Griezmann has been the best player of the 2022 World Cup, Michael? Yeah, I think it's a difficult argument with Lionel Messi and the sort of um, attention that that storyline in itself gets. And I don't think that's the only reason why, you know, Messi's created that storyline. It's fully, you know, merited from himself. But Griezmann's just been sensational. I mean, you know, I was absolutely gutted when England lost to France for what it was worth. I mean, maybe not sort of seeing Argentina in the last game, but going into that game, I thought sort of England and France probably looked the strongest two teams at the World Cup and I thought England kind of had the better pass obviously the only chance I'm going to get to say this on the podcast but Griezmann was the difference in that game you know that delivery for Olivier Giroud was just absolutely sensational I mean the defending for it isn't great it's not terrible even he's from such an unassuming position where you think he's going to pick him out but you know they're the kind of that's kind of the headline moments from Giroud also with his you know his run um, which created the opening for the uh, first goal versus Morocco. But it's everything else he's been doing, you know, the sort of recoveries in the middle of the park, getting France up the pitch, the, his ability to sort of win free kicks so consistently in such important positions, but also important moments. And I think one of the things that really maybe stands out is, you know, Aurelien Chameni has had a really good tournament. Rabiot and Fafana did well tonight. But, you know, losing Kante and Golo Kante is particularly massive and you kind of seen that Atletico side in Griezmann where he has had to almost share that responsibility at times in terms of sort of defending on the last line in front of the defense or you know picking the ball up in on the edge of the area and sort of transitioning into midfield and I thought in the second half in Morocco he was the sort of player who almost single-handedly turned the momentum of that game and I think in moments against England when England was starting to get momentum, he would do that as well. So, okay, Griezmann hasn't got any goals, but you're not maybe judging him as the player of the tournament on that. You may be also, and not just his assists, you may be, he has got assists, but you're judging him on that defensive ability, which has just been sensational. And I think maybe one of the sort of most like heartwarming aspects of it is 
probably, you know, he's always been a hard-working player, but sort of showing this kind of defensive intelligence to his game is maybe a side that we hadn't seen um, on such a big stage, like, so effectively. Yeah, 100%, Michael. I think the fact that he has started so many games have been involved rather than so many consecutive games for France is testament to just how important he has been to arguably one of the greatest international sides of all time. You know, maybe some people don't like hearing that because some of the football under Deschamps hasn't been the most romantic, shall we say. But you look at what they've done, certainly since Deschamps came in, and you can't really argue with it. They've made another World Cup final first side to make consecutive World Cup finals since Brazil, uh, of course, made the final in 98 and then in 2002. And I think uh, if Griezmann uh, can, as he can indeed do, if Griezmann can claim to have been one of the most pivotal members, one of the most ever-present members in that team, which he can do, then, yeah, we, we really have to be talking about him in in the highest and most glowing of, of terms. I'm keen, Michael, to hear your thoughts as well, actually, and maybe this this is uh, too soon, maybe rubbing salt into relatively recent wounds, but I actually felt England did a relatively good job of containing Kylian Mbappe, but in so doing, that almost allowed the likes of Griezmann to flourish and to have a little bit more room to manoeuvre, a little bit more breathing space. How did Argentina, going into that final, strike the balance between containing Mbappe, but also not affording too much space, affording too much time to his, well, maybe not equally capable, but almost equally capable teammates? Uh, I think it's such a difficult question. I think that's the most difficult question I've probably ever been asked on this podcast, to be honest. But I put, I put you on the spot, Michael. Yeah, that wasn't, no, definitely. That wasn't was... on the agenda. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I think you, what, what I do think is you've seen examples of you know maybe an easy answer is to say you put a man on him you man mark him the classic case maybe being Jason Park versus Lionel Messi in the 2011 Champions League final and I don't think that's the answer I I, I do think that the way Argentina have to beat France is by almost just playing their own game I think Argentina have to get that first goal in the final against France I was kind of looking through mm -hmm. France's tournament statistics and their sort of record, if you look at the last two World Cups, I'm pretty sure they've scored the first goal in every knockout game that they've progressed in in the World Cups in the last two. And then if you look at the sort of the last time they went out through a knockout goal and um, where they conceded first was, oh, the last time they conceded first in the knockout game even was against Switzerland when they lost on penalties. Obviously, France retook the lead, Switzerland equalised, went to pens. But I think Argentina have to take that game to France and mm. put France on the back foot. And if anything, it's it's not stopping Griezmann doing what he does best. It's maybe beating him in the mental battle and also beating the likes of Mbappe and putting them on the back foot, putting them on the back foot in a final in a position. Yes, France have all the experience that's taken them to a final, but they've not been on the back. They weren't on the back foot in the final against Croatia. And I think that's maybe where Argentina really have to sort of target being making a super fast start and looking at the areas where they can exploit and hurt France the most. Yeah, definitely, Michael. I think we've seen throughout the tournament that France aren't perfect defensively. I don't think any side, actually, for that matter, has been perfect defensively, with the exception, perhaps, of Morocco until tonight. Uh, this World Cup, um, yeah, I think it's probably the final that the neutrals would have wanted. It's probably 
the final that I think the purists would have wanted as well. You've got the Messi narrative. You've got two teams with oodles and oodles of talent, oodles and oodles of flair. So it's certainly shaping up anyway to be a quite brilliant final. Now, one team who couldn't quite make it to Sunday's final, they will, of course, be playing in that third, fourth place playoff, arguably the most pointless game in world football, is, is of course, Morocco. And I think, without wanting to sound too patronising, because it, it is quite easy, actually, to sound patronising when we say this, but I think the Moroccan team can go back to their clubs. They can go back to domestic football with so much pride. I think they are... They're obviously not the most expansive of teams at times. They have been based on a solid defence, but I don't think that in itself means that they weren't an entertaining team to watch. They had, as we said in that last episode, they have a solid base with flair players in attack and consistent flair players in attack, but still players who can give you that little bit of something. What I want to ask you firstly, Michael, and we can go on to look at them maybe in more detail shortly, but the first question I want to put to you is, where does this underdog story, i.e. the underdog story of Morocco, where does it rank amongst the all-time great underdog World Cup stories, Michael? I think if we kind of go back to that poetic narrative, it maybe ranks as the best, you know, um, the best African country ever at a World Cup, the best um, Arab country at a World Cup in, you know, with the World Cup played in an Arab country for the first time. I think that's sort of, you know, maybe one of the, sort of seldom beautiful storylines to come out of Qatar in that sense, in terms of the World Cup actually being in Qatar. But I think the sort of seeing how the locals sort of embraced um, Morocco as a national team was a really beautiful thing. I mean, it's quite interesting when you kind of put the question of underdogs, because this is a really talented, you know, it's one of the most talented teams in Africa. Mm. They've mm. got, you know, a centre-back that costs, over 20 million and you know you go through the spine very quickly you know goalkeepers uh, when the La Liga keeper of the season Hakimi you know maybe the best right back in the world at the moment okay people didn't know about Amrabat but everyone will you know he's not going anywhere he's definitely going to a massive club in the very near future Ziyech who again looks brilliant and Naziri who again has commanded big transfer fees and Buffal as well you know so really talented players I think in recent memory, at least, I think it's very hard to compare these modern underdogs to ones of the past where they kind of came from football and cultures or, you know, leagues that people just didn't know a thing about at the time because there just wasn't the access there. But I'd, I'd still say sort of Costa Rica for me, maybe rank a little bit higher. I think mm, that Costa mm. Rica team, um, that really did kind of typify that under underdog of the unknown a bit there were so many some random players that mm. and that you never really heard much about since even I think Joel Campbell got a few games back at Arsenal but in terms of yeah the sort of poetic storyline it certainly ranks amongst the highest what about you? Look it's been a great story I think a lot of the Morocco games certainly in the group stage I didn't manage to catch them so I was sort of late to the Morocco hype train so to speak but yeah as you say as a squad when you look at it it's laced with talent it's laced with players who operate in the top five leagues and you were quite keen actually Michael to highlight an affinity of sorts with one of the clubs which has actually been struggling in Liga this season and that is of course Angers there are I suppose almost a handful of players operating in that Moroccan team who ply their trade for Angers in Liga and one player in particular who I think prior to the tournament a lot of people 
would not have been too familiar with, but certainly now there will be a lot of suitors, shall we say, it feels like almost the entirety of Europe's top five leagues are chasing for his signature. I am, of course, talking about Morocco's number eight as Edin Unahi. How, and obviously he is still quite raw as a player, I think he's quite raw anyway, but yeah, obviously there is interest. How justified is that interest? Are we seeing a player who's having a sort of a purple patch of a tournament or is there something a bit more sustainable to his game, Michael? It's hard to tell, isn't it? I think it, I, my initial impression, sort of a very, you know, without data to back it up, sort of scout report of him would be he kind of fits somewhere in the middle. I think there is, yeah, clear signs that, you know, probably a lot of these Morocco players are sort of going through that purple patch and, um, you know, Anahi has been really, really sensational in this tournament. I, I mean, he, the, the, what what was brilliant though, and I think one of the things that will really help him sort of elevate himself to a bigger stage than where he's at with Angers, which again, no disrespect, and I think I'll come back to them in a second, but is that that bravery kind of became more and more confident as the tournament went on to take the ball in difficult situations. I mean, we talked about Griezmann being one of the best players defensively in the tournament, but Anahi at times was just running circles around him and the other French midfielders and linking the ball up had maybe the sort of best shot on goal during a match. You don't count the overhead bit, mm. overhead game, but technically it was it was a great effort and he, it was a chance very much that he orchestrated. And in that sort of ability and looking for the ball, I think will hold him in really high stead for his career, but yeah, I just wanted a very quick word on Andre because I think it's a really sort of nice, it's great that he's kind of come from Andre, a team, like you said, struggling in the league, and that's really sort of made him maybe the standout breakthrough player of the tournament. But then you've got the likes of Buffal, who sort of broke for a few years ago, can never live up to the hype, and you don't want there to be an Ahi to be the reminiscent of Buffal. But obviously Andre Wolves, you know, I've put Roman Saiz for years and we signed him from Angers all the way back in 2016. And he was, I think when they could return to league and he was pivotal to that side. And to see him leading that team is a sort of real great sense of pride. And I really, you kind of hope that it will, you know, with Angers struggling at the moment, like you said, it will help them sort of um, improve, you know, even if it's just a confidence thing that they take away from it. Well, Michael, I hope they don't improve because they're one of Strasbourg's direct rivals in the relegation battle. So I hope the players, well, Unahi certainly comes back from this tournament and he's there for about 10 minutes to pack his bags <laughs> and then head off to a bigger club. Uh, yeah, we'll see how yeah all of the players who have excelled at the World Cup fare when they return to their clubs. I think that in itself actually is something I'm particularly looking forward to, what with this World Cup being landed in the middle of the domestic season. Okay, Michael, I think we should probably draw the episode to a close there very quickly before we do, however, do so. I want to put it to you. What is your prediction for Sunday's final? Argentina against France, a World Cup final for the ages. Who's going to win it? I think Argentina, 2-0. I think they're the better side. I mm. think they're the more balanced side. I think we sports for France's weaknesses down that side. I think there's a reason teams haven't been going for the right side because I think Koundé has been one of the players of the tournament. But going back to Argentina, it seems the rom- the romantic storyline is there and the, romantic- the fairy tale ending is there also. And I just, I think, I hope I'm not being blinded by that, but I do think they've got the firepower. And, you know, we've seen sort of France really just clinging on in the last moments of games a bit or during spells of games. And I think there might be the ruthlessness from 
Argentina to take advantage of that. And I don't, you know, going off the Copa America win, I think they'll have, they won't be feeling the nerves as much as maybe people think they will because of this messy narrative. What about you, Ali? Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you there, Michael. I think there's just too much momentum with Argentina just now. There are just too many flaws in that French defence. I think it's going to be a 3-1 win for Argentina. 2-0, then the French will score to make it 2-1 in the 75th minute before Messi on a counter-attack rounds Hugo Lloris and puts his hands up in the air in one of the most iconic moments in World Cup history and rolls the ball into the empty net. If the scriptwriters are, well, playing ball, that is most likely what will happen. If Messi's listening to the podcast, basically. Yeah, exactly. If he's in the mood, well, he's always in the mood, isn't he? But yeah, let's just see how it happens. It's going to be a great final. I'm pretty sure it's going to be a great final. One for the ages. And yeah, okie dokie. Well, I'll say thank you to Michael Jones for all of your efforts and contributions throughout this three-part mini-series over the course of the World Cup tournament. I will thank Rudy Barlow in his absence. Barlow, of course, stepped in as presenter for the first episode in this mini-series and was, yeah, quite consistently brilliant with his hot takes uh, when it comes to Brazil crashing out at the quarterfinals and Enzo Fernandes stepping up and delivering. So, yeah, a shame that he couldn't join us this evening, but a huge thank you, nevertheless, to Barlow for all of his efforts and contributions. A huge thank you also to you, the listener. We will be back with our fortnightly episodes on all things European domestic football in the new year. Do keep an eye out for news as to when that first episode back after the new year will be released. We'll release details on Twitter about that. In the meantime, thank you. Please do stay safe. Please do stay well. Until next time, goodbye.